Rabbi Blyweiss, History Lecture 100. So this, today we're doing two parts that are not inherently connected. Everything's connected to major phenomena in the, in the 19th century. Um, what sometimes can be referred to as the neo-Orthodox phenomenon, or we can call it the German Gedolim of this, of this period. I'm going to mention three. Um, the first is Rav Yaakov Etlinger, who wrote a masterwork on Shas. He's referred to by his name, the Aruch Laner. Um, it's a major work for us this year on Machos um, that, we, that we've been learning. He was a Rav. He served in different places all around Germany, especially in the northern Altona. Do you remember who lived up in Altona not long ago? Uh, a century or so ago, was, was, that was Rav Yudas and Ibeshetz and uh, Rav Yaakov Emden. Right, the conflict. Um, he's actually one of the earliest of the German rabbis who received training in university as well, and that's startling. Maybe university rabbi. Uh, it's German, but first of all, recognize this is this is new in history. I mean, our rabbi were always, you know, trained in Torah. Shas and Poskim, and so university is, is a new phenomenon, and it's not going to be the last time we're going to hear of such a, such such an idea. People are sometimes stunned because the Aruch Laner is such an accepted classic; they would never in a million years associate it with university. But that's the um, these are the nature this is the nature of the times. And in Germany, they didn't take you so seriously if you didn't have that um, certain polished academic uh, edge. So perhaps perhaps that that was part of this. Um, Right, he had to be, you know, for a person to be accepted in that society, he had to be urbane and worldly. The, uh, in, in 1829, um, during an examination, he actually, though, I mean, uh, if anybody should question his credentials as a uh, Ben Tyrant, somebody whose, whose loyalties are first and last to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, he gave a public rebuke to Abraham Geiger, whose name you might remember from the Reform Movement, one of the founders of the reform, of, of reform. So um, he told Geiger, he, he rebuked him for speaking disrespectfully about Am Yisrael, about the Shifte Koch. Uh, and that's a big deal. In Germany, also, everything was very much decorum and order. That was something, uh, let's say, it was out of line, but that's what you do sometimes. He was indeed one of the uh, opponents to early reform, and we're going to see his students take an even stronger hand. Um, his students include Rav Shimshim Fahl Hirsch and Rav Azriel Hildesheimer who we're going to talk about next. Um, so, Rav Etlinger lived between 1798 and 1871. Rav Hirsch, the next generation, 1808 to 1888. He um, is credited with founding, sometimes referred to as neo-orthodoxy, uh, or more, more accurately, what was called Teira im Derech Eretz. Mishnah Perkeavos, rings a bell. So, um, inter, yeah, you have, to, you have to have Torah im derech eretz. Right. What is derech eretz? What could that mean? It could mean a parnasa, could be a job, could be general in, in integration with the uh, bigger world out there. Um, we're talking about Rav Shimshir Fal Hirsch. Uh, and um, he is, it's so interesting, there's a tendency, people like to recreate historical figures in their own images. So, and a figure like Rav Hirsch had so many different facets that many different worlds claim him as their own. Uh, I'm gonna try to paint, hopefully, an, a, a, a complex picture of, of, of him as somebody who um, certainly has his hands in lots of different <coughs> uh, parts of the world, but was a Ben Torah uh, first, and, first and last, much like his teacher. The, um, 
yeah, his, in fact, it's explained, his involvement in the world and his, many of his popular works. Are you familiar with any of the books that he wrote? Parish and Chumash is major. As you know, okay, I'll, I'll, then I'll introduce you to a couple others that you should be familiar with. Um, he, uh, they, they were intended as Kiruv. You have to speak to your, your people, your, your own generation. And it's not the first time we've seen this. We can think back to Rav Sa'ad Yigaon, right, in the first uh, authoritative work on Jewish philosophy. Certainly the Rambam taking up where, where Rav Sa'ad left off and, all, and, and the Mornavuchim and, and, and other works. Um, we, the Kuzari on a certain level is writing in certain languages his contemporaries can understand. And that's what you got to do. You have to be a rabbi of the people, Torah Chaim, and has to be a living Torah. So his other works, he was actually editor of a monthly journal. Uh, another thing, Germany was unique. And the Gedolium in Germany had to kind of uh, do it differently than anywhere else. You had to be of the world. So when was the, we, I mean, both Rav Etlinger, the Aruch Lener, his Rebbe, have you learned the Aruch Lener this year? Has Rav Lieber taken it out? Aruch Lener is one of the classic works and one of the major achronim uh, on our Masechta, among many others. Um, so I wouldn't have been surprised if it, if it, if it, if it had come up yet. Um, so both of them had university training which is not something that uh, we, we associate with our, with our rabbis. And, and Rav Hirsch edited a monthly journal called Jeshurun. Of course, Yeshurun, one of the names of Klal Yisrael. Um, and many, many books. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. Um, one of them is called 19 Letters. No, not familiar? It came out in 1836. So in other words, early on in his life, the letter is, a, um, is an exchange between a rabbi and a university student. Sort of a twist on the Kuzari, who is exciting, imagining, based on based in a true story, imagining an exchange between the rabbi and the um, king of the Khazar people who had converted. So in this case, it's directly addressing his generation, the proverbial university student who can't quite come to terms with the Torah, and the rabbi eloquently uh, presents Torah in that contemporary perspective. And probably the 19 Letters is the breakout book. That's what gains him Refresh's initial public attention. Um, arguably, an even more famous work is Chorev, which gives an overview. It's not unlike, if I were to put it in a genre of Jewish books, I would, I would put it together with the Sefer Chinuch. It approaches Torah and the mitzvos and observance in general and explains them. But whereas this Chinuch is speaking to his generation, in the, in the 13th century, 14th century, 13th century. Um, so the uh, Rav Hirsch is very much with an eye on, uh, and, and you'll hear in a moment, I'll give a couple of illustrations um, on, on what his nation, what his generation needs to understand about those mitzvahs, especially since the mitzvahs in Germany in the 19th century started to seem antiquated to the modern educated academic. Um, and, uh, and, and he needs, he's sometimes called the Maharal of the enlightened era. Uh, trying to put things in terms that they could understand. So, um, the Maharal is somebody who's also defies categorization, but he's somebody who talks about, who extrapolates from all of Shas and Kabbalah and uh, post scheme and is able to give out through his works, probably the most famous works, Netzach Yisrael and uh, Tiferes Yisrael, and, and but many others. Uh, system of thought of Torah. It's not philosophy, I'm avoiding that term, but um, that was unique. His way of writing, the Maharal, was, was original and very much with his generation in mind, and so too, that's, that's the comparison I'm making. 
Um, if, however, you really want to, let's say somebody asks you suddenly to, to cook up a good shear on kashus, on shatnes, on any category, you could look to the chinuch. But if you're trying to, let's say, do some kiruv <coughs> and reach out to a modern audience, chorev would be a great place to start uh, and possibly to finish. Um, it's there, and uh, the, the, this idea comes through in many of his writings, but in Chorev you really get this too, that he understands Klal Yisrael is a people with a mission, it's how he's explaining it to the world. He says he calls us the civilizing agents of history. It's a Kiruv way of looking at things. Uh, and something, something that, especially in Germany, when they, when they saw themselves at the cutting edge of culture and refined and, uh, and, and having a mission in the world was appealing to the Jews. And, and he said, today, we have, we, the Jewish people now enjoy a new opportunity. He was part of this, this whole new momentum in the post-Napoleonic world. And what we saw recently in history is Napoleon had his own great Sanhedrin that he started. You're familiar with it, with the story, and um, represented these new opportunities, Jews, to, to, to break out of the ghetto walls and to, to integrate into modern society. Uh, so Rav Hirsch is trying to take this idea that, of course, is a... Is, 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 is the gates up now and the horses are out, of, are out and they're, going, they're charging headfirst into assimilation. And what first is trying to do is take the same idealism and excitement of the time and say, do that with Torah. Take the natural morality of Torah and use that in order to, uh, in order to help civilize all of the world. You have a message, you're, a, you're an amskula, am you're, a, you're a chosen people with, with, with a mission. Um, How successful was Somewhat. He certainly cut a strong figure and is a role model. And the, the, the Yekis, the German Yekis, the, who we think of as meticulous in their observance of mitzvahs, uh, certainly celebrate and, and have him as, their, as an iconic figure. Uh, you know, there's the, I don't know how you gauge success in the rabbinate, in, 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 in especially in these difficult times that we're, that we're living through right now, these last few hundred years when the people are overwhelmingly assimilating. Is that the fault of the rabbis? No, it's the product of the times, and we're trying to trace all of the uh, all of the different strands of history that are leading to the, the increased assimilation and alienation from from uh, from tradition. But reverse uh, did an important kiddush Hashem and, and represents something. I mean, listen, here was a figure who was a who was a guttled the Torah, recognized throughout the world, who simultaneously had the university um, education and speech, who dressed stylishly. He was sophisticated, he was, he was articulate, um, and at the same time, he was a major tzaddik and a Yerushalayim. That just that alone could somehow all come together, that there was a figure who could embody all of these disparate, we don't think of them as disparate, a person could do that, but he did that, and that was new, because the, the Enlightenment's still young. We were not used to this. We don't know if, can you really straddle two different worlds? Aren't they totally in contradiction? Isn't the answer easier in Eastern Europe where they simply, for a period at least, shunned modernity and just, just uh, you know, hid or secluded themselves within the safe walls of the shtetl? Maybe. Or alternately, in the Muslim-ruled lands where they were not exposed until the 20th century. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. When we get to the, get to um, the the mass migration of Jews, Sephardi Jews from the different communities in the Muslim rulers, where they were initially totally secluded from modernity, and um, is that really a preferable way to go? Well, sure, in a certain way, obviously, we're we're all here to serve Hashem, but practically, it meant that they didn't have the resources to confront modernity, and what one found almost immediately was they didn't, unlike their Ashkenazi from cousins 
who actually had tools of uh, to stand up to modernity in Sinhala, the, the, they didn't know, and the exposure, the seductions of modernity were too great, and many of them failed, and it, they didn't lose their frumkai. Internally, they were very strong, but externally, they just, and, then, and they, they didn't have the wherewithal, the resources to resist, and they certainly didn't give, give those over to their children, to the next generations. So that you have, going back to Rav Hirsch, somebody who, can, who represents a possibility of doing both, is extraordinary. Um, to, uh, much can be said about modern orthodoxy today. Refresh uh, would not be, a, would not, I mean, even though some want to claim that he might be an original modern orthodox rabbi, that it, when you really learn about Refresh, there are many elements. First of all, it's an anachronism. You know, modern orthodoxy is unique to America in the 19th, 20th century, and it's just not true. I mean, he was, a, if you had to pigeonhole him, you'd pigeonhole him squarely with the, uh, with the Haredim of the, of the contemporary times. The uh, <coughs> But, I, oh, I, was, I know I was going to say about modern orthodoxy. I was, I, was, uh, I was once director of a yeshiva that was part of a network of modern orthodox schools. We had a seminar all day, and we were talking about the problems in modern orthodox schools in Israel. And there are definitely schools in crisis where the kids are overwhelmingly struggling with their frumakai. How's that for euphemism? But there's clearly an issue. And um, one of the speakers, his name was Bill Berkowitz, his father was the chancellor at uh, Bar Ilan University, Emmanuel Jacob, uh, Berkowitz. So Do, Rabbi Dov Berkowitz gave a long speech, but I'll give you the, what I remember is the punchline, which is that we embrace in modern orthodoxy Torah Umada, that's the YU motto, Torah and um, secular studies, enlightened studies, and so on, with the idea that, uh, that they can be integrated. He said, but have we really given, even though it may be sound like very idealistic, theoretically beautiful ideas, let's take the best of all the worlds and try to lead the best life we can serving Hashem. He said, in actuality, what we find uh, is that people, when they combine Torah and modernity or in secular studies, the Torah loses. Midterms come around and uh, you know, the Torah studies suddenly wane and everybody's got to study for the midterms, the finals, because those grades are real and they're going to affect what grad school you get into, whereas the Torah you're learning is, eh, it's all good, it's all ephemeral though, it's not measured in any this-worldly kind of way. And, um, and he said in the modern orthodox, what we have not done an adequate job of is borer. We haven't selected out, there's good and there's bad and there's stuff that's absolutely antithetical to the Torah, and nobody ever came along and said, well, not all of modernity should be embraced. And maybe he indicated for the extraordinary individual, for the Rav Hirsch personality, I think he mentioned Rav Soloveitchik from YU, for, set, for such individuals, maybe they could straddle the lines. But for the Hamone Am, for the masses, it, it's too great a challenge, and Torah usually loses. Anyway, Rav Hirsch, with, with Rav Hirsch, Torah, Torah wins. Yeah, of course. Um, Others explain Rav Shimon Schwab, who comes from the, the German uh, community, uh, Rav in the 20th century, said that the fact that he advocated secular studies, he said, was a horashah. It was just an emergency measure in order to save Jews from complete assimilation, but it was not a sheet. It was not what he held by Lechachila. Um, Rav Hirsch has a, a Kant, Immanuel Kant was the philosopher of the time, very, very influential in all of modernity, uh, and I don't want to digress and describe how so, because not, not a class on Kant, but Rav Hirsch had a fantastic, helpful response, a Jewish response to Kant. He's not Jewish? Kant was not Jewish, even though his impact on modernity affected Jews as products of modernity. So Hirsch's, Rav Hirsch will say, people call him by his last name because of the academic approach, Rav Hirsch, we would say, um, 
quote, uh, said, said as follows, Kant insisted on moral autonomy to such an extent that any law coming from the outside, even if that outsider is Hashem, must be subjected to the scrutiny of man's own conscience and a, a moral self-legislation. To Kant, only autonomy was the basis of true morality. On, in loose terms, we, we recognize Kant as a logical extension of Spinoza and placing the individual as the supreme being and the arbiter of morality, and Kant takes it to the next level, and that's, that's how Rav Hirsch is, uh, is relating to it. He says, he says, at the end of the day, you're number one. And as much as you know, you, you, you learn how to, um, you, 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 you navigate your way in this world, but um, no external source is, is really more authoritative and deferring to what, to an, uh, an external source, is blindly moral. You're just a follower, and they would call that dangerous. Rav Hirsch was, was Rav in Frankfurt on, on Main, and when we last saw that we saw immense conflict between the very strong reform movement in Frankfurt and then the Frum, the Frum Jews, who many of whom left. Um, and Rav Hirsch's response to this was to formally secede from the Union and form their own separatist community. So this is one illustration of how he would not fit anywhere within modern orthodoxy as we would understand it today. Modern orthodoxy very much, uh, it's hard to even um, some, uh, generalize because there are a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different views within modern orthodoxy along the spectrum, but um, most views I think would involve some kind of integration with a greater world. A lot of orthodox, modern orthodox rabbis, let's say, would sit on panels with, with liberal Jews as one illustration. So reverse was in, in, about none of that. He said, we have nothing to do with them. We, we're separate nations, separate people. And, um, and he had his own, own uh, he, he was vocally uh, in opposition to any compromise uh, or even any association with reform and then later early conservative, which is, we know, called historical Judaism. Uh, with regards to the Zionist movement, it's interesting. Um, before it was founded officially as the Zionist movement, it was Chol Beit Zion, it was other, it was, it was a lot of rumblings taking place across the Jewish world, and Refresh was alive until 1888, so uh, it makes sense that he, he would have a comment on that, um, and Eretz Yisrael was very much in people's minds in the discussion. He was concerned, he voiced his concern about resettling the land, um, especially this, this, this movement that we discussed briefly, and I'm gonna get to it more substantively when we, um, uh, when we, when we get a little bit further, but um, what we saw when we went to Maskeret Batya, uh, this, this idea, the ideas first are originally articulated by Rav Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher, and later by, uh, by, by Rav uh, Shmuel Molover and others, um, that uh, we've got to resettle the land, and we've got to rekindle um, uh, the spirit in people's hearts and start keeping the mitzvahs and all over again. So um, in the 19 letters, Rav Hirsch says as follows, he says, the fate of the land of Israel depends on our obedience to Hashem. It's not about our political power, and it's not our military might. He says, there's no problem in efforts to make the soil of the Holy Land bloom again, even during our exile. But I can't rest from the worry that by doing this, we will just increase the ruin of the Holy Land with Chil Shabbos and with the transgressions of the mitzvot satliyos ba'aretz, the agricultural laws, he writes. Now he writes this at the beginning of his career when, uh, when uh, these were theoretical ideas, but there's, we, we perceive something 
almost prophetic here that the return to the land would somehow be accompanied by a secularization, by an abandonment of Shabbos and uh, the agricultural laws, and certainly with the Pumash Shemitah, the, the big Shemitah controversy that comes out at the very, very end of Rafersh's life. And you remember the last thing he does, effectively, was he gives a, made, he's a generous contribution to the poor, struggling farmers in Maskeret Bartia right before his death, during that critical um, Tarmat, a year that that 1880 um, eight, 1889 Shemitah year, uh, and he was aware that uh, these were fraught and 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 it, these are fraught times with implications far reaching into the future. A younger colleague and the last figure I'm going to talk about in, 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 of the German Gedolim from this period is Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer. Familiar name? Um, he sets up the first rabbinic seminary. Um, first, it actually started in Eisenstadt, which was in the Hunger- Austro-Hungarian Empire, where Austro-Hungarian Empire, where he was uh, from, and he moved it to Berlin because he perceived it was a liberal place. It was he was definitely of the left wing, if you had to put orthodoxy on the spectrum, um, and Berlin was a natural home, as we saw. Berlin was the development, the, the represented the cutting edge of uh, of, of uh, much of what was going on in in, in, pro- in human progress. Um, it's the first institution where you have people training and studying to be rabbinim, serving in communities who also, in the institution, learn secular studies. Uh, it was actually the, the, the institution was named after its founder. It's called the Hildesheimer Seminary. It does sound like YU. It, it, many, many says it's 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 a precursor to YU. Um, he actually it, it, not only did they have it, but they secular studies were a prerequisite for admission. You couldn't be a rabbi in the Hildesheimer Seminary unless you had certain uh, minimal background in secular studies, which of course takes the issue further than the Aruch Lanier and Rav Shemshav Hirsch had done. Um, in the curriculum too, whereas we're used to a Torah curriculum of um, Taira, Shas, Poskim, Rishonim, Achronim, um, central in the Hildesheimer Seminary was, were um, the study of Tanakh, Bible studies per se, which till today that's that's a novelty. One doesn't find that so much. Also, study of the Hebrew language, Lashon Hakodesh, a centrally central part of the curriculum. Um, it was controversial. It was controversial for the secular studies. It was controversial. Some accused it, and here I, this is the first time I've heard this name. <coughs> Some called the the seminary a smicha factory. There was people to go in, to be called rabbi, like a professional school. Why you sometimes is called this. Um, many consider Rav Hildesheimer more accurately as the father of modern orthodoxy, but that's also anachronistic, meaning he was a product of his time and place and was trying to do the best under circumstances. But we'll see that he too, not so clear that he would have um, been entirely at home in, 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 in let's say, in Yeshiva University or... Uh, even Skokie or another other modern Orthodox institutions. He was, for example, and uh, uh, like his Rebbe, he was a, he was a staunch uh, opponent to the reform. Where today one finds, let's say, sometimes modern Orthodox rabbis are, are absolutely opposed to reform, but others others on the more liberal end, uh, we we see they're being more concessionary. Um, there's a there's an institution in uh, New York um, that has a name that escapes me right now. Rabbi Avi Weiss is the founder. It's a liberal, liberal modern, or it calls itself modern orthodox. Many modern orthodox say it's way off the charts, not, not, no longer in the Torah sphere. Um, but he certainly, uh, Rabbi Weiss, is very amenable to interacting with other denominations of Jews. 
um, and that was not Rav Hildesheimer in the least. Um, he's also among the first to, um, to refute biblical criticism on a scholarly level. He had the kalim, he had the ability to do that. We'll see one of his students actually took it to the next level, Rav David Svi Hoffman. Um, this uh, study of, of, of Torah, of Talmud, as a museum artifact that the Enlightenment had developed called the Wissenschaft, a name I, I personally enjoy pronouncing, um, he, uh, Rav, Rav Hildesheimer, who founded the first um, seminary, rabbinic seminary, where they had secular studies, so he had the following comments on the Wissenschaft. He says, Jews care more about what Rashi has to teach us than about the color of Rashi's clothes. If you like pithy uh, calendar wall sayings, that really sums it up to a, to a large degree. Of um, you know, the, the difference between the Torah approach, which emphasizes how can I be more moral, how can I be more medayic in keeping halacha, which means approximating a Kaddish will for us, that's what we're about. Whereas the Dervishenshaf and the secular studies that the Jews increasingly um, are seduced by are about study of everything and not much of anything, and not certainly not an emphasis on moral integrity, uh, and certainly not on, on, on serving Hashem as an emphasis. Um, Rav Hildesheimer also was not what one associates, <coughs> even though he's again associated with modern orthodoxy, uh, he was a very simple and modest individual, both in his dress and his demeanor. Uh, he, he never took a salary as a rabbi. He, uh, he was self-sufficient, he had, he had a pranas on the side, um, he was known for never allowing other people, including servants, to serve him. He cited Rav Papa as a role model. And uh, a couple months ago already, we got to Rav Papa, I might have mentioned this and even mentioned Rav Hildesheimer then, um, that, uh, that uh, he said what we would call today, I don't want executive privilege. His students want to be Mishamish, and Rav Papa says, I'm not that important. Um, in 1860, Rav um, when he was 40 years old, built a home in Eretz Israel, even though he lived in Berlin. And he visited Eretz Yisrael, but effect, effectively the home was designated as a free way station for poor people, Olde Regal, pilgrims to Yerushalayim. You remember that the, the 19th century, we haven't really gotten to it quite yet, but will become increasing place of Jewish traffic. Jews start coming as modernity um, makes that more possible. Um, and there's a need for such a place. It's immense chesed. Um, to such a degree that he makes efforts to move himself and his seminary from Berlin to Jerusalem. And with that attempt, he met with a very, very passionate opposition. The local rabbis <coughs> in Jerusalem, certainly and more or less throughout Eretz Israel, uh, said that maybe in Germany you need to make concessions to modernity and that's why you have your various unique approaches, he says, but there's no place for this in the Holy Land. Wow. We, don't, we don't compromise. And he, he never moved. I thought, that, I thought the opposition would come from the other end. From Germany? From Germany. That they would, they would miss him, you mean? No, they would want to move all the way to Ah, maybe so, maybe so. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe here one, one can't, you can find a parallel with this in modern orthodoxy, which has a strong, I mean, today it's Zionist identification with Eretz Israel and importance to moving here. But, but I think you can, that goes beyond, that, that crosses party lines. Eretz Israel is always central to every caring, knowing Jew. And Rav Hildesheimer certainly was among those. Um, that's what I want to talk about uh, briefly about what was going on in Germany um, during, during these years. But now I'm gonna, we're going to focus on the Musser movement, and I'm going to start by talking about um, our hero, Rav Yisrael Lipkin of Salant, often referred to as Rav Yisrael Salanter. He lived between 1810 and 1883. He was a Rosh Hashiva. 
He moved around a lot, like we see during this time, it's tremendous, uh, tumultuous time. Um, and he founded the Muslim movement, which is uh, another one of those things you'd like on your resume. Now, if you remember the line of um, descent, the inspiration went directly from the Vilna Gaon to, remember, who's next? Of Chaim of Elozhen, who is the founder of the yeshiva movement of Elozhen Yeshiva, the flagship yeshiva, uh, to his student, of Chaim of Elozhen's students, who didn't write very much and is not a very well-known um, individual, is Rav Yosef Zundel, who is the, is the paragon of morality, of decency, of modesty. I'm just great, by all means, by all means. Um, he, uh, Rav Yosef Zundel was so self-effacing he had such a quiet focus on constantly growing, constantly developing himself, his neshama, his benedam lechavero, benedam lemakom. He will be in many ways Rav Yisrael's inspiration for the Muslim movement. Um, the movement he would teach had to be something that you couldn't do academically from an arm's distance. It had to be done, he uses the word frequently, behispalus with passion, with emotion, and with absolute, uh, there, were, there were skills, there were tools you could use. A person should raise his voice, a person should sing, parables were used, anything that would trigger an emotional response, and of course the story that comes, he founds the Beit Musar, you've heard me this one before, he founds the base, the Musar, the Musar Shtibel. The uh, Musar Shtibel is a place where the average person was invited to come and sit for un half hour, hour, even longer, to work on Musr, on the personality, which I'll talk about soon enough. And of course, the image of the Musr Shtibel is, uh, it's intense, and people are screaming in there, uh, because everything works. Whatever, whatever you can do to, to move yourself, to slap yourself out of your complacency, and get yourself closer to Kharish Baruch So the uh, story goes that one day, um, entering the Musr Shtibel, the, um, one of the members opens the door very dramatically, runs over to the Aram Kodesh, opens the doors of the Aram Kodesh and screams, I'm a worm, and falls down in his tears. The second guy walks in, he's even more flamboyant. He walks in, he runs to the Aram Kodesh, throws the, throws the doors open, I'm a worm. The third guy walks in, but he's new. He doesn't really know the ropes very well, and he walks in, and he sort of looks around self-consciously, and gingerly walks over to the Aaron Kodesh and says, uh, I'm a worm, and falls down. First guy looks at the second guy and says, look who's only been here two weeks and already thinks he's a worm. <laughs> <laughs> so Rav Yisrael clearly is, a, is not about that. He's about the genuine thing, not just about, uh, ironically, it's true, you can work on Musr and that itself could be a, a conceit, a source of arrogance. Uh, and of course, he 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 would he would brook no compromise. You, you got you got to you got to do it the right way. Um, right. What does that mean? Most I'm going to get to it. So the shamans around. Uh, for sure. For sure. For sure. It's a Musr movement. Musr is a Jewish concept. I just learned the Gemara now in Sanhedrin where Vayisru that Batsheva gave classic Musr. She blasted uh, Shlomo Melech. The Gemara indicates that she whipped him in her Musr. So for sure, it's intrinsic to Jewish life. So what is the Musr movement? Give me just a second to give you a little background, a little bit more about Rabbi Yisrael, so you have a whole, uh, more of a uh, full picture of who, of, of, his, of, of who he was, who the man was. So he, among his interesting accomplishments, he's the first to try to translate the Talmud. Controversial idea. Was it done? No. Uh, not, not, but, no. 
No. Uh, the Sansino version, uh, that stilted old English, um, came out around this time, but he's the first significant, certainly the first uh, um, uh, Gadol in Tyra, uh, who makes an attempt, it never comes out, he dies before he makes a major um, accomplished enough, and, and, and I don't think we, I don't know if we even have copies of what he, what he produced. Um, he, like, he, like the Vilna Gon, like Rav Chaim, like, like really this school of Velazhin, um, advocated a return to Shas and Poskim. In an age where people were learning lots of different varieties, lots of different approaches <coughs> to our tradition, he says you have to learn the basics, and when you learn the basics, you work on your midos. The best Musr Sefer is the Talmud. Everything's in there. <coughs> um, he says he personally avoided philosophical speculation, which we saw destroyed Spanish Jewry once upon a time, and was still very much in, the, in, in favor in the world, uh, and certainly in, in the increasing enlightenment, the university crowd. He was not a fan, he did not focus on Kabbalah. Um, in fact, he had the following to say. He's known for some of the most, uh, we, yesterday we met the Kutzker Rebbe, so the same generation, and in a certain level in my mind, equally is quotable, uh, just, as much, just as much as the aphorisms, the incredible wit and, and sharpness of the Kutzker uh, in addressing a certain kind of uh, uh, Jew and trying, trying to give Musr, so Israel is every bit as sharp and, and, and witty. He says, what practical difference does it make in which heaven HaKadosh Baruch Hu sits which might be a Kabbalistic pursuit, but he says, in which, what difference in which heaven does the Kaddish Baruch sit? One thing is clear to me, that they will beat with whips and it will hurt. Um, early on, he was a Rosh Hashiva in a suburb of Vilna, and um, it was around then that he started taking older books that were not yet, uh, they were classics, but not necessarily focused books, not books that people necessarily learned on a regular basis. <coughs> in, as, as the printing press now became uh, standardized, not necessarily books that were in everybody's libraries, he would start to give emphasis to books predominantly, who's, who's the main book one associates with the Muslim movement? Or books? Who's the author? Correct, the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, who we met, and his books, the Mesil Asisharim, Der Hashem, Das Tfunos, and others. Um, not just there, early on, one of the first of the Rishonim of Shlomo Ibn Gaviro. Uh, what's that? Do you use it by heart? No, no. Chobos Levalos is definitely a classic of the Muslim movement, but a different, a, a different safer. No, that's Rav Yonah. These are, those are all, these are, you're mentioning all great books and all would be central, but Rav Shlomo uh, Ibn Gaviro has, has his own Muslim book. Um, that, it, that, that uh, will be emphasized. Uh, a third book is really unusual that um, Rabbi Israel Salanter absolutely endorsed and became a classic and has learned till today. It's a book called Cheshbon and Nefesh. I mean, I think to you, Cheshbon and Nefesh. It's written by a less known figure named Menachem Mendel Leffen. And it's possible that he's less known because he had strong ties to the world of the Haskalah, of the Enlightenment. So you don't expect necessarily a book that's associated with the Escala would be one that would be so favored by Rav Israel Salanter, especially since it's based at least in part on another book that's not Jewish. In structure and in sometimes in content, it's clearly, and you could study the two, based on Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. Now, you could be shocked and appalled maybe, but um, 
it is a classic because it's really helpful. First of all, it, it, gives, it provides you a routine. He breaks down Midos into 13 categories and gives you a systematic approach where every 13 weeks you revisit a certain Mida and work on that and focus on that each week. So that the repetition itself is incredibly effective towards internalizing something. So many of us, let's say, work in Musser for a period on one area and then we move on to the next and that area that we worked on starts to starts starts to recede, starts starts to weaken. So this way, it reinforces. Um, it, uh, it's, it's got fantastic ideas on what he calls the nefesh Bahamis, the animalistic drive within us that, that motivates us without realizing it so often. Um, and it does. And listen, Musser, unquestionably, although often we would say that Freud came from the Musser movement, not the other way around. Really? For sure. Musser, the Musser, like you correctly pointed out, has been in the Jewish spirit for forever. And the Musser movement made it even more primary. Um, we'll talk, I mean, we, we mentioned the Musser movement earlier as, as arguably would not have happened had it not been for the Hasidic revolution. The Hasidim, one of their claims against the establishment of the Jewish world, the main Torah community called the Mitznagdim or the, uh, the, the Litvish world sometimes um, was that they had, didn't have enough Musser, that they'd become elitist. And, um, and, and these books were tried to break. Rabbi Shah in a sense, was saying, I hear that criticism. And, I, and I'm going to counter it by forming a movement to try to address the problems. He took, it, he took it to heart. Anyway, how could there be a book that at the center based on Poor Richard's Almanac? Um, I'm not quite sure, but uh, it, it seems to be, I mean, Poor Richard's Almanac is the earlier book, and the parallels are striking between the two works. Um, but then if, if I, I would trust Rabbi Yisrael, we, 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 we uh, trust in our, our Gedolim that he went through the book and he understood that there was nothing tainted there so you could rely on it. Um, during the cholera epidemic that swept up the Jewish world in 1848, um, Where, here? In, this is in Europe, he was in Vilna, or near Vilna. So um, the Jews who were in his community, many of whom were very, very uh, great Yerushalayim, they resisted doing anything that would violate halacha, and Israel said, you have to do malachos on Shabbos to save a life. He says, and, and he says, don't rely on non-Jews to save your life. Rely on Jews and be machal Shabbos. As the Machaber says, mitzvah lechal Shabbos, in the beginning of Siman Shin Chav Ches, in the Orachayim, even though it's not a mitzvah to break Shabbos, you're allowed to break Shabbos to save a life, but the Mechaber uses a strong language because religious Jews resist this. It's hard for us to break Shabbos. And Rabbi Israel is trying to counter them as well and say there are priorities. You have to live by the Torah and not die by the Torah. On Yom Kippur, um, when, when um, it was imperative that people ate in order to survive, um, he brought cake to shul and insisted wow. and, and, and <coughs> explained that part of your vote is Hashem today is to eat. I mean, to, not to everybody, to individuals who were, who were uh, stricken in the epidemic. Um, when he and his wife married, this is very well known, he, they divided responsibilities. A lot of couples do this. Um, he took on all of the, um, the spiritual decisions and aspects of their life, of their married life together. And her, she was in charge of all the physical, the, the house and the physical responsibilities. Uh, many years later, she explained that was their original setup, and that's why he made all the decisions. Because the physical really is all spiritual. Um, she once bought a lottery ticket, and he assembled a base team and made a neder that if she won, 
he made a konam, I will have no part of it. And his students who formed the base team realized what he was doing and they said, Rebbe, you, you don't want the money. What's wrong with money? So he said, um, and one finds this dream in the Muslim movement per se, a tzaddik could be rich. That's possible. Much harder though. And so we see uh, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency towards um, resisting any material gain and wealth, and the Bali Musr were generally very poor, and were fine with that, and actually felt that that was L'Chachil, and one could see that as a, as a, as a direct extension of Israel, his, his own model. He was extremely poor. We'll see how he lived his life. We'll say it again. I heard stories about the time of having one idea. He woke up, he woke up, and he asked Tavir if he used to do Chazrat Halom. Yeah. And he was, he was very distraught, and he said, well, what was the dream? He said, I dreamed that I was rich. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, listen to this. Here's, here's a very similar story. Um, so, so the student said, why, why take a netter? So he says, you don't understand. If you're rich, all that means is a Kaddish Baruch Hu has appointed you into an impossible job. It means you're a Gabay Tzedakah. It's not your money. All the money that comes into your hands is just a loan from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And he said, he said, what it really means is an immense responsibility. You have to go all around town finding exactly who's genuinely poor, who's lying, and, and distribute the money equitably. He said, who can handle the responsibility for all that money? I'm not that big of a tzaddik, he said. Okay. Some people in the but not me. I mean, again, so you said argument today, because today we do have people who do all that. Maybe so. Although some would resist for the same reason. In 1844, I'm giving you little bits and pieces to paint the picture. In 1844, the reform movement, now quite a movement after, after they've been around 34 years since the uh, opening of their first synagogue in Germany, they had their conference in Braunschweig, Germany, and the significance there was that they, you know what happened at this conference? They, they, they permitted? With the trade, right? No. That's the Pittsburgh, that's, the, that's in America. Oh, that's the American one? That's the American one. No, this was in Braunschweig, and it was there that they um, allowed intermarriage, um. which maybe today sounds pretty scant, par for the course, but even in reform, that was radical. Intermarriage, you could like, you could, you could just intermarry. Um, it, when this happened, Rabbi Israel Salanter said, because of this, the nations, so this is in 1844, keep, keep track of the dates, um, because of this, the nations of the world will prohibit non-Jews from marrying Jews. Kaddish Baruch gets us mida k'neged mida, measure for measure. And indeed, 90 years, almost exactly to the date later, the Nazis enacted what were called the Nuremberg Laws in 1934, um, in which they, were pro they prohibited the marriage of good German Aryans, non-Jews, to Jews. Uh, probably the most famous of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's works is Or Yisrael. He writes it near the end of his life in 1880. Three years before his death, he comes out. Um, he writes a lot, and I'm going to single out one interesting um, focus of his, very much along the lines of Musser, and you, you, you make a connection with modern-day psychology. That's a fair connection. Um, listen to what he writes. He writes about what he calls the conscious. He used the term chitzonius, externality. That's the conscious and what we would call the subconscious, which he terms the pninius. These are, this is, uh, we would say it's Freud's territory, except he came before Freud. Freud had two Orthodox Jewish grandfathers. Freud, Freud didn't get his ideas in a, in a vacuum either. Wow. Yeah. And, um, 
And, and, and Rabbi Israel is writing about all these ideas, deep psychology. He says these are the processes that every human being has every, every day. Um, he, says, he says the best way, if you want to try to work on yourself and work on both of these consciousness, these, these levels of consciousness, the best thing to do is to work on yourself during an emotionally calm, quiet period. Because when you're in control, when things are going well, you have the best chance of actually being productive and effective. Less likely is in, your, in, a, in, a, in a period of agitation or stress, you will not be very effective in overcoming bad midos. He says also, working on midos is extremely difficult. I'm quoting him. There's a lot to quote. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a series of quotes. because. And, and, and last night I sat down to review this and said, okay, I've got to pare it down. I have too many quotes from Rabbi Shalom Lanter. I just couldn't do it. Oh, no, I can't get rid of that one. I can't get rid of this one. So here's, here's one to start us off. He says, it's easier to know the entire Talmud than it is to correct a single bad midah. Uh, elsewhere, he says, in order to leave yeshiva, this is one I quote a lot when I give, I have a whole file I give on career and professionalism. He says, in order to leave yeshiva and go into business, a person has to fortify himself spiritually. But, he says, if a person manages to, for, manages to fortify himself well, leaving yeshiva is a shame. He says, he says uh, imagine wasting such spiritual powers on business. Yeah, this is great. Right, 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 right. It's very much, I mean, he's the architect of this whole Shana base dynamic that we've got going here. Right? There's stay and learn. Be a Ben Tyra, right? Fill yourself with Tyra. And then you can go off to university. And then, of course, at the end of it, and this is what everybody always suspects at the end of the four years of staying in Yeshiva, okay, I'm ready to go to university. Oh, yeah, you don't want to say a little more Torah? And that's a catch-22. And eventually, many people do learn, do leave, and they go and learn whatever they're going to learn for their profession. But uh, both points are well taken. Elsewhere, he says, a tzaddik is, is not a person who worries about his fellow man's soul and his own stomach. A tzaddik worries about his own soul and his fellow man's stomach. We're mostly the, the opposite. Most people are worried about their own stuff, and everyone's going, hey, you hear, what, you hear how that rabbi sinned? We always like to find the rabbi's sins. That's the popular uh, thing, because then if the rabbi's a sinner, then I'm totally justified. I can do anything, because look what the rabbi's doing. Um, he says, I'm going to quit this in Hebrew. Harav she'en cholkin alav rav. A rav who nobody argues with him within his community, he's not within the category of a rabbi. On the other hand, a rabbi who's afraid in front of his community, he's not within the category of, of a human being. There has to be some tension, but you have to be able to have harmony, but also be able to say uh, sometimes unpopular ideas and sometimes make unpopular decisions. Um, he tells a shochet, you're worried about novella? about possibly messing up the, uh, the kashrus of your, of your animal. But he says, and, and that's why, because the storekeeper, the, the, the shochet was, was concerned, maybe I've gotten into the wrong trade. Uh, it's possible that I'm you know, taking on so many averas and such a responsibility. So Rabbi Israel told him, he said, he said, you know, you want to open up a store? Do you realize a store owner, a store owner has potential for gross theft on a daily basis? Coveting, cheating, lying, graft, in equal measures, and many, many other Affairs. He's pointing out that it doesn't matter what job you have, every job is fraught, and you're going to have to work hard. 
I mean, in Torah, to make sure that you, you're, and in Musr, to make sure you're, you're, a, you're a high level. Um, a rich man once asked him, he said, Rabbi, I have one hour a day to learn. Should I learn Musr or Talmud? What do you say? You know it. What do you say, man? You got it. You got it. Have you heard this before? Yes. Spend spend the hour learning Musr. You will discover many more free hours in the day. Rabbi Israel Salanter. Almost all. So many of these things are Rabbi Israel. When in doubt, Um, walking through the streets of Salans, he saw uh, a shutter. When he saw a shutter that wasn't set right, he would adjust it. Meaning. It was in the details. Goodness in life was in the details. Why would he, why would he just have said it? Because chas v'shalom, maybe at night it might bang open and keep people awake. Because that was a priority for him. Even though it was anonymous. Nobody knew that he was the one who sent the shutter. He would talk to everybody with immense kavod. He addressed boys. How's your Yiddish? He addressed boys. You, you, Ashkenazi, Shiva Bacha, you got this, no? The, uh, with the formal you... In Hebrew, you'd have a plural you. Also, in many other languages, you have plural. That's the nice way to, to speak to people, um, to develop their self-esteem. Nobody speaks to kids that way. Most, most people keep, treat kids as kids, and that's not always so correct. What language spoken in... He spoke Yiddish. Yiddish, sir. Um, he taught that taking a child's toy boat while the child was playing with the bath is like drowning a large boat, a boat of an adult. Revolvi, Revolvi brings that in and elaborates on it in his, in his book on parenting. To, you have to get down and recognize your child's world. It's not a joke. They take things seriously. And you, have to, you, have to, you have to give respect to your kids. It's great. I mean, these are, you could study these insights and learn these as Muslim in, in themselves. Um, a host encouraged him to use as much water as he wanted for Natila Yadai, and he said, it's no problem, I have a maid. Jewish, Jewish girl, she'll, she'll come and, and fill up. At the time, of course, there's no indoor water. They still have to go out to the well. And Rabbi Sorel's response was, I have no intention of doing a heder mitzvah by bending the shoulders of a poor yisoma. I have a poor orphan girl. Um, one theme that comes out of many of the teachings of Israel is um, Jews and some unintentional hypocrisy, sometimes in keeping mitzvahs, but not keeping things properly uh, prioritized. And you know, you're doing this, but at what expense? You know, you want to get to shul on time, you run over people in the hallway. Kind, kind, of, kind of an idea and that, that comes to in many different ways. Um, he was asked once why he gave such excellent musr, why he was so incisive and to the point. And he said, very simple, I keep a mirror in my shtender. He's always looking at himself, so it's the strongest musr. Um, he had opponents, we're going to hear about them soon, this is a time of controversy and intrigue. Um, it, once upon a time, he put up, you know, the traditional way of doing things in yeshiva is the, the Magid Shir puts up a list of Marimakomos, of sources that the students then have to look up on their own. So he posted such a list of Marimakomos, and somebody very nastily who knew some Torah took down his list and put up a different list of Marimakomos that didn't have anything to do with one another, but the student wouldn't know that. And um, when he came to deliver the Shir at the end, he got up. And um, before he said the shear, hesitated. And in the end, he gave the shear. And um, they asked him, oh, was it really difficult? After they realized what had happened, was it hard to put together the shear? He said, no, no, I had the shear, but I was hesitating over it. I knew the story would come out, and, and, and be 
because I could give this year, I, I was concerned it might appear to be Gaivedic. Maybe people would feel it was arrogant that I could put together any shear on any sources, um, but I realized that it was, it was a higher level uh, value that we teach Torah and not be mevatel all these students Torah. So he gave the shear. Um, on the last day of his life, he was dying, frail, uh, barely had, had any energy for anything, certainly not to speak. But for some reason, it's impossible to understand this, how Gadol could be left. He was left alone with the Shomer, a young, a young man who was with him, anticipating his death. And he saw the Shomer was agitated because he was about to be alone with a dead body. So Rabbi Yisrael mustered all of his strength to have a whole conversation very pleasantly with the young man, teaching him all the halachos that actually there's nothing to be afraid of being alone with a dead body. You're actually doing a great mitzvah. It's a chesed shel emes. Kaddish Baruch Hu will send you a, you'll, you'll be fine 100%. That, that, in his last minutes, all he could think about is the other guy. And a few hours later, he died. Um, he left nothing of value, not even one book. He always used borrowed books. It was a gum. Um, the only thing that he owned were an old talus and an old set of tefillin. And you know the old European tefillin, these tiny pitzkel little things? That's what they could afford. And he left the Muslim movement, which I'm going to uh, talk about now. We said already it's a response to the Hasidic claims. It's a response to a sense that the uh, elite of, of Talmud Chachamim had not been focused enough on ethics. Um, like you said before, the, the, the focus of the movement may have packaged studying ethics, Musr, in a new way. The ideas are as old as Harsinai. Um, I mentioned the Musr Shtibel in the joke, so it actually was a real place. And he had big ambitions. Uh, on certain level, on a certain level, Rabbi Yisrael would have said that maybe the Muslim movement was a failure. He hoped to take over the world. And uh, we'll see, it didn't quite do that. And the Beit Musar, there is one, actually, it's interesting to give this year right here. Um, the most famous Beit Musar, if there are any in the world, I don't know of many, uh, uh, but there is one, not a walking distance from here, in Bravobi Zatzal's yeshiva, um, right behind Angel Bakery, is, one, is, is the best way I can describe it to you. And it's Beit Musar, and I was had to go and hear Bravobi several times to give his, he, he has open schmoozes he gave to the public, and, uh, and I was there. So the, the purpose, the purpose of, of, of the place is to sit and study. Um, it didn't catch on. What it would do, the movement would do, is penetrated the yeshivas indirectly. And there's the concept of Musr, the notion of having a Musr Seder, 15 minutes a day, a half hour a day, did indeed catch on eventually. But initially, guess what, in these times, and this is gonna be more familiar to you, it was new. And since it was new, this whole Muslim movement, and it couldn't be coming with a better pedigree. I mean, Rabbi Shal Salanter and uh, coming out of the yeshiva world, but new was suspicious. In the days after Shabtai Tzvi, in the days of the Enlightenment, um, you remember I quoted this Yiddish expression, uh, when you've been birthed once by the pots, you um, are constantly um, blowing on your hand, even when, even when your hand has, has, has resumed its health. Anything new looks funny, and, and people resist it, and, and they resist it passionately. <coughs> Eventually, what Musr would be in addition to a Seder, but it grows into a, a, an approach, a style of chinuch, of education, um, where emotion is used to, to combat the Yitzhahara. It's not enough to just use your dry intellect. And the rabbi throws out a few insights. Oh, great. I mean, insights are great, don't get me wrong. But in order to really get the Yitzhahara, you've got you've to um, mobilize 
galvanize a whole arsenal, and that's got to come from our emotional reserves too. So he teaches. Um, the Maskilim were among the opponents. They hated the Muslim movement. And you think, what's their problem? They didn't like the old-style religious world. They called it unethical. Wouldn't they have liked the, uh, at least the Muslim movement? No. No, they didn't like the whole package of Torah because they wanted to live and, be, and drink and be merry and have their own free lifestyle outside. And the Muslim movement... Was that? Right, right, exactly. It's just the opposite. And not only that, for them, they found Musr, um, uh, in the same way that they didn't like Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, they found Musr was threatening because it, it, it actually, and it's, it's, its role models, possessed these great qualities that, um, that they claimed the Orthodox world was lacking. So his leaders, his leaders were unimpeachable. You know, they, they would criticize the Orthodox world of immorality, but that's not the Musr movement, or of looking sloppy or being unsophisticated. Um, now, they, res they did stop short of going after Israel Salanter. He was one of these figures that people did generally didn't touch. When he died, though, um, they went after the other leaders, and they actually will meet Rav Yitzhak Blazer very soon. They, they accuse him of extortion. Um, he was self-sufficient, and he always looked well-dressed, so they thought, oh, where's all his money come from, coming from? It took Rav Yitzchak Al-Khan Inspector to write a public letter in a newspaper to defend Rav Yitzchak Blazer of any of, any of these uh, accusations. I'm going to just briefly mention um, some of the great figures of the Muslim movement, because you should know their names. Um, and um, there's a fine book, I think we have it in our library, little, little uh, purplish books, parts of Muxer, that they gives much more on all of these figures. You've, you've gone through it? I've seen some of it. It's, it's worthy of going through everything. It's endlessly inspired. It's the kind of thing you'll read these little blurbs, <coughs> and half of them you'll turn to the guy sitting next to you and have to share it with him. It's that good. You know, sometimes you learn something. You can't just keep it to yourself. You say, oh, this is amazing. So I'll give you a little bit about them. Rav Simcha Zissel Ziv, these are the disciples of Rabbi Israel, and really the three close friends who were disciples of Rabbi Israel, Rabbi Simcha Zissel Ziv, uh, Rav Yitzchak Blazer, Petterberger, we, 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 we mentioned him, and Rav Naftali Amsterdam. So Rav Simcha Zissel Ziv is called the Altar of Kelm. Kelm will be um, the, one of the early Musr yeshivas. Um, Wait, what does the altar mean? Altar means the, the older one, the elder of Kelm. It's Yiddish for elder. The old, the, the, the Rav. So, um, he was of a higher moral dimension. Anytime he touched money, his minhag was to wash his hands quickly, assuming that something dirty happened with it. Probably a reasonable assumption. When he entered his home on Lil Shabbos, he would be makbid to pause, study the, the beautifully set table, and each deliciously prepared dish. That way he could be properly grateful to his wife. Uh, before, a few days before he died, he made sure to have his, all of his clothes cleaned and pressed because he knew that the poor people would be inheriting them soon. Um, Rav Yitzchak Petterberger, Blaser, um, was known, for example, lest you think, because you were saying like the Muslim movement is very much not of this world, so sometimes we have an image of them being dour and dark, chas v'sholem, they were simchadic individuals, and he was known for being the life of the party at simchas. He would dance on tabletops at weddings. Um, he sang, he composed rhymes. Um, even when his good friend, Rav Naftali Amsterdam, got married for a second time, and he and his, and his bride were both in their 70s, um, Rav Yitzchak Blazer celebrated as if they were young, young married couple, and he did shtick in front of them. That's what you do. Kate said, "Marakim lifnei It's the mitzvah. 
Um, he once attended a rabbinic uh, kennis, a conference of rabbis, and he said almost nothing. And his students asked him. He was these, these were all huge Talmudic chachamim. Uh, they asked, "Why were you silent?" He said, "Oh, I have to demonstrate my learning in front of everybody." Naftali, Amsterdam, was Rabin, this is a name we haven't heard yet, Helsinki, uh, among other places. Whenever he would enter the shul, he was makhpid to make sure a, a safer was under his arm. That way he could, he could claim that they were not standing for him, they were standing for the safer. He didn't want to take any credit for himself. Um, occasionally, these three giants of Musser would go on their own provengolus, it's an expression I use when I refer to the Vilnagon. There was a period, five-year period in the Vilnagon's life that he went wandering, and nobody quite knows why. Ostensibly, probably, it was to break his midos. And they were, they, they, they were very clear about that. They were so trying to overcome the... What's that? So you put that was it. That was the idea. They went, what, was the, what was the idea? They dressed in rags. They went anonymously, even though they were gedolim, but nobody recognized them. Um, and they, they wanted it that way. They... Um, their goal, of course, was to break their typus. Any ego, any sense, any, any, any desires that are extraneous to serving Hashem. Um, I'm going to mention now the two, and I'll conclude with this for today, the two great yeshivas, in addition to Kelm, there maybe are two a little more prominent yeshivas who we associate with the Muslim movement and very much are the legacy of the Muslim movement. They are Slobodka and Navardic. Navardic, of course, the, uh, the, what, what exists of Navardic today is just down the street from us. Um, in a building, if you're familiar, down, down the way. I can describe it to you if, you're, if it's of interest. Um, the, uh, we'll talk about Slobodka and Navardic. Some people see them as point and counterpoint. They, they have, they, they have kind of, Slobodka is the positive, build up the individual. Navardic is a very it's intense, serious place, but those are stereotypes, and let me try to fill, flat, flesh those out a little bit. First of all, I'm talking about Slobodka. You can't talk about it. We're talking about its, its altar, its, uh, its elder, its, its grand rebbe. Um, whose reminiscence to be Finkel, the name should be familiar because he's the great grandfather of the of the Rosh Hashim of Mir who just passed away. Reminiscence to be Finkel, who shares the name. And, and you know who Mashkiach is of the of the issue? Who's that? My great grandfather. Oh, your great grandfather is Mashkiach in Slovakia. Yeah. Well, that's you've got some pretty Chasuv uh, uh, ancestry. So reminiscence to be their altar. Um, was orphaned at a young age. He learned in Kelm. He was a student of Simcha Zessel Ziv. You can see the, trace, trace the roots of all of their, their Torah. Um, he, in founding Slobodka, it's Yeshiva, it was named actually for um, Rabbi Israel. It was called the Knesset Israel Yeshiva. Um, later it moved to Hebron. Maybe we'll tell that story uh, if, we, if we manage the trip to Hebron. He sent scouts around to recruit students. He wanted those who had a knack for Musser. I guess much like the Kotzkarov, one of those people who had that uncompromising uh, quest for truth, and he, uh, so Rav Simple Rav Nussensi Finkel wanted, wanted those students who were good at Musser. Um, if you think of Rav Nussensi, you think of probably two primary values. He focused on the godless of the individual, potential godless of the greatness of the individual, and not unrelated, he focused on chesed. Those were... Those were uh, those what a Jew should focus on those, but those were that's what comes to mind first when, when thinking about him. He said a person has to be careful of another person's honor to an extreme. Um, you should behave overflowing with love and kindness. One of the things that's great about learning Musser is most of this stuff is known to us. 
but it's so important to constantly be talking about it and having it on your mind because then you have a better chance of doing it. I was just going to say, the famous introduction, nothing new, just keep going over it and over it and maybe eventually some of it will go in. So you hear about these personalities, you hear, yes, go out of your way to, to push love and kindness. Right. Got to do that more. He told his older students to learn with the younger students. They should be inspirational to them. He emphasized greeting people pleasantly. He once, uh, there was a student visiting from another yeshiva who had this, this uh, kind of negative uh, expression on his face. And Rabbi Shal approached him several times, reminding the boy to smile. You're living tired. Um, once somebody gave him money, he didn't check what was in the envelope. He didn't see how much it was. He asked the donor to put it under the tablecloth. And uh, people were watching this. That's how the story is known. The first Talmud who came to the house was asked to take the envelope. He never, never saw how much was in it. The, uh, he knew how to get people motivated. He knew which buttons to press. He arranged in the yeshiva behind the scenes, you know, moralities and the details, who should room with whom, knowing that people bring out different qualities, different, different parts of our personality. It's still the altar slobodka. Yeah. Uh, he emphasized a person should have a clean and neat appearance. Um, he was against the image of the downtrodden yeshiva bachri. You should be respectable. Um, of course, the critics, like especially the maskilim, um, accused him of being baligaiva. Look at those fancy dressed uh, yeshiva bachri. You can't win sometimes if you have somebody against you. Um, the Slobodka style, the Slobodka yeshiva and other yeshivas, many other yeshivas would be founded in this style. Um, their style of learning included at least a half hour a day where the entire yeshiva learns in unison. They sing, usually it's a plaintive melody. Um, they're all singing the same melody, each one learning separate mosasvarim tailored to their needs. So there's, it's a beautiful image of individuality together with the group, the communal, the communal good. Each individual needs to work on whatever they need to work on, but you're part of this uh, momentum of the klal in, 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 in upgrading yourself. The mashkiach is huge in, 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 in Slobodka, in, in, in these yeshivas, uh, sometimes even more so than the Rosh Yeshiva. Uh, the mashkiach, Rav Nassim Svi is, the, is mashkiach, uh, also very famous later on in the Mir, Rav uh, Yerucham Leibovich, was, was Mashkiach. Um, the altar taught, he didn't want students to say over Torah in his own name. He didn't want them to uh, be created in his image. He wanted each to develop their own gifts. The, the story goes about um, another Rosh Hashiva was looking for a chasan, was looking for a groom, and the altar said, um, well, I have many prize students. You see that one over in, there in the corner? He's the Ramban, and that one over there, that's the Rashba. And he said, hey, there's Rabbi Kiva Eger. And the other Rosh Shiva overwhelmed with it. He said, well, I, I was looking for somebody simple, maybe just a Rav Chaim Brisk, perhaps. Um, there's a really long list of students that come out from this yeshiva. And it's, if you've never heard it before, it's awe-inspiring because each one would go on to be a gadol to found their own yeshiva, yeshiva system, listen to who... Uh, that comes out of here. Rabbi Eliezer um, Yehuda, Laser Yudel Finkel, who would be the Rosh Hashiva of Mir, in Mir and then later in Jerusalem. Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner, the Pachad, the Pachad Yitzchak. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, uh, Gadol in America. Rabbi Aaron Cutler, the founder of Lakewood. Rabbi David Leibovich, the founder of Chafetz Chaim Yeshiva. 
Rav Yaakov Yitzchak Rudim in the founder of Ner Yisrael Yeshiva in Baltimore. Rav Yechezkel Sarna, um, the altar's son-in-law was Rav Yitzchak Sher, who, went, who founded Slobodkin Bnei Brak. Uh, Rav Shach, and uh, Rav Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, who's a postic in the 20th century, called the Sri Dei Eishas Kever we stood by in, in Harmanuchos, together with a few of the others. Um, the last, uh, last yeshiva I'm going to talk about more briefly is, is, is Navardic, and they have an altar too. Their altar in Navardic is Rabbi Yosef Yosel Hurwitz. Now, how do you keep track of these yeshivas? The stereotype in Kelm was the emphasis is on the individual. Slobodka, you think of Slobodka as emphasizing the group. So in Navardic, it's sort of in between. The group was built on the perfection of the individual. Now, um, Navardic is sometimes criticized because you don't have the same long list of gedolim to emerge from Navardic. I don't know if that's a fair criticism, so what? We're not about the results. Um, it does sound severe, especially to, for today's standards of low self-esteem. Some of the things that they did worked then and might not work today. Uh, um, you know, but, uh, but once upon a time, there was such an idea. For example, he, in his own model, was very uncompromising. He never waited, for example, for his meal to be fully cooked because that would have implied that eating was important. Um, he said that there's no point when goodness becomes automatic, meaning you can't ever rest. There's no complacency. You're always growing or not. Um, the Navardic style, they had an even more sad melody that they sang when they, when they, when they uh, learned Musser. The atmosphere was deliberately dimmed in the base medrash. Um, some of the tricks that they used, students would subdue their yetzer, they would mingle with well-dressed people while they dressed in rags. They entered a train without a coin to be thrown off the train. Um, the idea, of course, was very much emotional to really internalize the importance and uh, lots of different ways of working on Musser. Uh, this raised the entire world's consciousness. And uh, okay, we'll, we'll, pick, we'll pick up from here on uh, next Sunday.